Father, I want to thank you again for the truth of your word. Father, I, I pray that as we think about your word, that Lord, that there would be a, a sense of anticipation and excitement for what you have ahead for us in Christ's return. Lord, I pray that you would get us focused on the truths of that return. And Lord, I ask God that we ourselves would respond and that we ourselves would be preparing and making ourselves ready, which is the challenge, the overarching challenge that you give to us concerning your coming again. And so I ask you, Lord, would you please speak clearly tonight to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'm 55. I grew up in the 70s. I gave my heart to Christ when I was 76, excuse me, yeah, in 76, <laughs> and uh, yeah. was 200 years old. I've been living backwards, that's right, from 76 <laughs> to 55, and I remember when I first, about that time, actually before I gave my heart to Christ, I started reading through the book of Revelation, I got interested in it. I would play sick sometimes so I could stay home and read the book of Revelation. I got very curious about it, and sometime around there, or after I gave my heart to Christ, I started reading Hal Lindsey's uh, There's a New World Coming, which is his commentary on Revelation. Um, I looked at some, did not read all of uh, Lake Great Planet Earth. How many of you have ever heard of either of those two books? Okay, a couple of you older people, all right. Um, not to fault the rest of you by any means. Uh, Hal Lindsey has been around. Hal Lindsey has a particular view of end times. Um, I, I don't agree with his, or a lot of what he says in his views. Um, one particular view that we're going to look at has to do with the second coming of Christ. Uh, it it is, has been a very popular view to embrace this concept that's commonly been called the rapture. Um, some people referred to a pre-tribulation rapture and versus a post-tribulation rapture. And for the sake of uh, words, I'm going to use the, the term rapture to just simply refer to a pre-tribulation rapture, okay? Um, and the word rapture simply means catching up, and it is found uh, in the Latin Vulgate, in this passage that we're going to look at first in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, that's how the word came about. Uh, and the only reason why I prefer to use the rapture very specifically referring to a pre-tribulation rapture, because most people when they talk about the rapture tend to mean that. So that's how I'm going to be using it this evening. I'm going to, when I refer to the rapture, I'm not going to use the big long pre-tribulation rapture. I'm going to be calling it simply rapture, okay? Um, this again was a view that was, for the most part, first embraced in 1830 and among the Brethren, a denomination, and it quickly began to spread. By the late 1800s, um, Schofield began to, put, as he was pulling his uh, editors and writers together, and, and he put together the Schofield notes, and he himself was a... Um, he himself was a, a, believed in a rapture, and he, uh, he really began to make this concept of the rapture well-known, famous, if you will, uh, to the point where I would say that many people today would hold to a lot of views expressed in the Schofield Notes without realizing um, 
that what is the term that's used for his view? It for some reason has just suddenly escaped me. Dispensational. Thank you. And he he holds to what's commonly called a dispensational view. The the rapture is pretty much birthed out of the concept of the dispensational view of scripture, and. So as to, they also in that in that Bible they also hold to a premillennial view. So it's a pre-tribulation rapture premillennial standpoint. Uh, this has become very well known, especially in the charismatic movement. And as we go through the next, I believe it's six weeks, we're going to be looking at a lot of things with regard to end times, the return of Christ, the millennium, heaven, hell. And these kinds of things, we're going to be looking at this concept of soul sleep. Is this even a valid concept? Seventh-day Adventists promote this particular view of what happens to us when we die, but before the resurrection. We need to look at these types of things and be able to be good students and find out, is this really what Scripture teaches, or does Scripture teach a, a different particular view? So that's what we're going to do today. So... We're going to be reading 1 Thessalonians 4. I am going to be focusing on the return of the Lord, but please understand uh, I, I am going to be doing that and also uh, referring to quite a bit this concept of the rapture. Now, let me just say this from the get-go. There are a lot of views held in the body of Christ, pro-rapture, anti-rapture, or post-millennial, or, or pre-tribulation rapture, post-tribulation rapture, um, pre-millennial view, amillennial view, post-millennial view, pan-millennial view, and the like. And here's the bottom line. Uh, I, I do believe that there is significance in studying these things. I truly believe that. Uh, should Is it something that should divide the body of Christ? Absolutely not. It does not pertain to salvation issues and the, the upshot of all of Jesus' teaching in these things is watch and pray so that you are ready. Now, you know, when you get into uh, the Left Behind series, that holds to a very clear rapture view. And the, the, but the bottom line is, when Christ returns, whether it's seven years before he comes and then he comes again, the bottom line is Jesus is coming back. And we need to be ready. So as we dig into this, uh, we're, we, we need to realize that regardless of the view that we end up holding, we need to realize that the upside is we need to watch and pray. We need to be encouraging others and challenging them to live as if Christ were coming today. That is the, the, the challenge that Jesus left with us, especially, for example, in, in Matthew 24 and 25 when he talks about the ten, the five wise and the five foolish virgins. Are you ready? So as we look in this, let's just keep that in mind. This is controversial. I do take a standpoint, and forgive me if in presenting my standpoint, I step on your toes, um, ruffle your feathers. You just understand from my viewpoint, I'm okay with that, but I don't want to be rude. I don't want to be arrogant in, in my view, but I do have a particular position on this. So I'm not going to come from this stance, well, this is what this teaches, this is what this teaches, and you know, it's up to you to decide. Uh, you will decide, but I will be holding a particular view, okay? And that's going to be very clear. So let's, let's dig into these scriptures here. First in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting with verse 13. 
Uh, this is our first passage we need to grapple with. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of the men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, meaning this is what Jesus said, uh, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one each other with these words. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need you. We do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Um, as we can see here, it would appear as if Jesus comes to the atmosphere and then he returns. It would appear that way. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say even what happens after he comes to the atmosphere. Okay. But there are certain reasons why, why people, especially in the 1800s and, and even today, have, have latched on to this theory or this view of the rapture. And I'm going to give you very quickly four reasons why. I'm sure there's more, but I'm just kind of honing in on these four. Number one, there is this passage that talks about Jesus coming to, into the air and catching people up. And it does not seem as if he comes the rest of the way to the earth. Okay, now can I just say, just because the Bible doesn't, this passage doesn't say he continued to earth and he wiped out the Antichrist or blah, 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 doesn't mean that he didn't. It just doesn't say that. And so people have been stumped by this, you know, why does he only come to the air? Why doesn't he come all the way to the earth? Because the second coming of Jesus, he's supposed to come to the earth. And so number one reason is because this passage seems to indicate that he only comes to the air. You know what I mean? The atmosphere it doesn't come all the way to the earth. Number two, um, there are many signs you can read about, for example, in Matthew 24, at, when Jesus is talking, when the disciples ask the question, so what are the signs of the end of the age and your coming, etc., etc.? And Jesus begins to give many signs that will precede his second coming. Now, it, the the... The conclusion might be, well, wait a second. Now, if all of these signs have to take place and they haven't taken place yet, then we know that Jesus isn't coming today, okay? To salvage that so that there is the sense of imminence of the return of Christ, that Christ could come today and some of these signs don't have to be fulfilled, they would say, with the rapture seven years prior to the return of Christ, if we believe this, then we never know when Christ is going to return because after the rapture, some many of these signs could be fulfilled and then Christ will return. So do you understand why they, why they say this? Okay, so that you, you live with this constant sense of imminence. The return of Christ is imminent. It could happen today. Number three... The, they do believe that the church will not go through the Great Tribulation. Um, and so to, 
it, it would seem in some passages that the church is present when Christ returns, and so they, they don't believe that, that the church is going to go through this horrendous tribulation, much as the, say, the, the, the Israelites lived in Goshen and did not experience the ten plagues. It's a very common analogy from the Old Testament that therefore Christians in the end times will not have to go through the Great Tribulation. Um, they do look at a few verses um, in Revelation, for example, in chapter 3. But that So that's number 3. Number 4, of course, they would then say, we also believe it because Scripture teaches it. And so we need to look at this passage. We This passage tells us that some have fallen asleep by the way, what does the, what does it mean to fall asleep? That they were taking a long nap? That they slept through the alarm? What does it mean? They fell asleep. They died. Okay? So that's a euphemism for they died. The damsel, 12 years old, that Jesus raised from the dead, it says that her spirit had departed and that she, Jesus says, no, she has only fallen asleep. So Jesus uses that term fallen asleep, but we're told by the gospel writers that her spirit had departed. That means that she had died. Okay? So these these there are some who have fallen asleep. Where is their spirit, by the way? When they have fallen asleep, where is their spirit? According to this passage, when Jesus comes back, where are they? They are with him. Okay, they're not in the grave. All right, that's a passage as we look at this concept of soul sleep um, that needs to uh, that, that seems to point in a very different direction. Okay, so saints are going to be coming with Jesus. He's going to be coming to this earth with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And then the dead in Christ will rise. Now it says that this is something that, that Jesus taught, specifically that the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those who are alive and remaining, which obviously was not Paul, but those of us, meaning the, the rest of us Christians who are alive and remaining at the end of the age, they will be caught up to be with the Lord forever. Let me again point out that it does not say Jesus comes to the earth, but we cannot exclude that as a possibility. So I, I'm not going to say I need to come up with some uh, explanation for why he doesn't come to the earth, because it doesn't say that he doesn't. You follow me here? Okay. He, he may very well come to the earth. It just simply says, and they will be with the Lord forever. Okay? Do you have a question? I do. Um, okay. But it's not about the Jesus coming to earth. Okay. Um, when you said that the spirits of those who have died in Christ are with Jesus, mm-hmm. where does it say that in the passage? Okay. So it says, we believe that Jesus... Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Um... Okay, yes, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Verse 14. Okay. So those who had died, their spirits are with Jesus, he's going to be returning with them. Okay. Um, let's understand, it, it does say that according to the Lord's own word. Let's realize this, First Thessalonians was probably written around 51 A.D., um, it is possible that the gospel according to Mark was written by this time. It is possible. I would venture to say most, the vast majority of scholars, conservative scholars, would say no. It's probably written, written a little closer to 60 AD, but we don't know for sure. And so there is no, it is very possible when Paul is writing this, there is no gospel that is written 
And so, but Paul is aware that Jesus touched on this. We just don't find it in any of the Gospels. That's okay. There's a lot that Jesus said that's not recorded in the Gospels. So we, I don't think we, are, we need to feel obligated. Well, let's look through the four Gospels and try and find what Jesus taught here. I don't think we need to do that. But that is something that Jesus in his earthly ministry taught. So again, we don't need to just assume that Jesus does not come to the rest of the way to the earth. Uh, so we don't need to have this caveat, well, the rapture, okay? The question, though, needs to be is, does this passage actually teach that Jesus is going to rapture his people seven years prior to his second coming? So if I were to diagram this, I would have the cross here, and here is the end of the age, and I am going to, I'm going to put a little, okay, this is the throne of God, and this right here, how can I put this? Um, I'm going to put this right here with a big R as the return of Christ, okay? And this is him reigning in glory, Matthew 25, sitting on his throne, etc. <clears throat> the rapture view would hold that seven years prior to Christ's return, his second coming, this would be seven years, we have the rapture, okay? After the rapture, then, we would have the revelation of the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, or the beast. Um, most people would see those three as synonymous, though the spirit of Antichrist is throughout the church age. And so, it, it, I, I don't want to get into those seven years that uh, is, is presented. As, they, they view Revelation more literal, that there is an actual three and a half years and three and a half years, making seven years for tribulation, the rapture comes just prior to that, okay? So that's kind of the, the time scale, if you will, of this. Now, we need to ask this question. Is there going to be a return of Christ seven years before the return of Christ? Now, to me, here's some of the significance of why I want to pursue this, and I want to present it to you. Number one, of course, it's a very popular theory, and it's, it's what is commonly presented in books and made into movies like Left Behind and so on. Um, but here's my question. Here's my, here's my deeper concern. That if there is no rapture, well, first of all, if there is a rapture, would you not suppose that if all the church is uh, catapulted into heaven and meets with Jesus in the, in the air and goes to be with him, there are no believers left on the earth, apparently over the seven years, 144,000 Jews, become Christians, super evangelists, etc. Would you not suppose that in their evangelism, they would be able to point to all of these scriptures about the return of Christ, share their theory about the rapture, and convince many people, hey, what about those hundreds of millions, if not a billion, I don't know how many people, let's just keep it at hundreds of millions, people, true believers in Jesus, caught up, they're suddenly vanished on the face of the earth. How does science, how would the world explain this? And I don't know what left behind and how they treat that, because I've not seen, but I think maybe the first one or two installments of the, the series. But that would be like the most incredible evangelistic tool ever. Who would not come to Christ? But apparently the entire world refuses to come to Christ. Well, let's look at the, the opposite of this. What happens if, uh, if, if there is no rapture and 
we go into the tribulation, the Antichrist, if you hold to the view of an Antichrist, and I personally do, um, if there, if the, when the Antichrist is revealed, people would step back and say, well, this can't be the Antichrist because guess what hasn't happened? Okay, and so because of this, the church gets duped. This can't be the Antichrist. This can't be the beast or the man of lawlessness because the rapture hasn't happened. And I'm going to, I'm going to suggest this, and there's scripture to support this, but I believe that the Antichrist is going to, he's going to come from the church itself. He's going to be raised up as a leader in the church. He's going to lead a tremendous apostasy of people away from Jesus Christ. How would anyone be able to do that? Because we see it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Before he comes, there's going to be a great rebellion. And he is going to be a part of this. And after the rebellion, more than likely, he's going to be exalted to his position and whatever military, religious uh, exaltation there's going to be, uh, he is going to become a world leader. The church is going to be completely oblivious to this if they embrace the concept of the rapture because the rapture would not have happened. And I don't believe the rapture will happen. And so it would certainly lead many to believe that this can't be the Antichrist and, and again, allow themselves to be duped. Now, that, that's speculation, I understand that. So, but that motivates me to, to want to dig into the scripture. So we're going to do this. I want us to look now at it, uh, by the way, in Acts 1, 10 and 11, we're not going to look at that passage, I will refer to it. Jesus ascends and the clouds cover him, okay? Revelation chapter 1 I believe it's 8 and 9 talks about him returning in the clouds, every eye seeing him, etc. And he comes in the clouds. Um, Jesus himself refers to the Son of Man uh, when he's questioned by the Sanhedrin. He's going to, when you see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, so he refers to the Son of Man returning in the clouds. So this is a very common understanding when Jesus comes back a second time, he's going to be coming, as the angel said to the disciples, he's going to come even as you see him going in the clouds. So now let's turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And let's look at this passage because this passage in particular is commonly held to by those who embrace the theory of the rapture as the rapture itself. This, they would say, this is the rapture right here. And we're going to turn, again, Matthew 24, we're going to look at verses 30 and 31. And it says, at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. This, they say, is this gathering, this catching up to be with the Lord forever, this rapture. <clears throat> now, I, I have some, some concerns about this because when it says in verse, what is it, verse 30, who is they when it says they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in the sky? Who is they? Say that one more time. All the tribes of the earth, the nations, the ethnos, all the nations or tribes, the language groups of the earth, all of them will see him coming. Now, 
One of the things about the rapture that's taught is that it's a secret rapture. It happens suddenly. People don't see Jesus coming. People are suddenly caught up in the air. But at the second coming, that's when every eye will see him. This clearly tells me that every eye is going to see him. There's nothing secret about this. When he comes, how does he come? It says that he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds. We remember that trumpet call, don't we, from 1 Thessalonians 4. It, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God. Do you remember that from 1 Thessalonians 4? We see that repeated here. So the uh, it, it's it's maybe more of a whisper, I don't know, of the archangel, but nevertheless, he, or, or maybe it's a call that only the elect hear, but the shout of the archangel, there's a loud trumpet call, the, uh, the elect are gathered from the four winds of the earth and from one end of the heavens to the other. So there is a trumpet call that's given here. First Thessalonians 4 talks about a trumpet blast, okay? Now, Let's turn to a particular passage in 1 Thessalonians 15 that again is held to, to be another scripture passage that would teach the rapture. That is, again, the return of Christ, a secret return of Christ seven years before his actual return in which he battles the Antichrist, defeats him, and brings everybody to, to judgment. Okay? Now, it says here in verse 50. It says in verse 50, I declare to you, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. What does that mean? We will not all die. But we will all be changed. How many people are going to be changed? Everyone. That's right. All. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, in the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. This is a teaching of the, 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 the rapture, we are told. Now, if, if that's the case, then the question that I have is, when it says um, that it will happen at the uh, the last trumpet, um, at the return of Christ, we saw in Matthew twenty four. It's very clear that that must teach the the second coming of Christ and not the rapture. And we see a trumpet call here. We see a trumpet call there. Um, this right here says that there is a, a trumpet blast. Um, and that the, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, uh, in, um, imperishable. So we are told, excuse me one second here. So we see in this passage in verse 52 that it speaks of this trumpet as the last trumpet. Now, if this is the last trumpet and there's a trumpet call at the return of Christ, so we have here a trumpet at the return of Christ 
And it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, which is supposed to refer to the rapture, that there's a trumpet there. And 1 Corinthians 15, we are told, is supposed to refer to the trumpet. Excuse me, is supposed to refer to the second coming of Christ. It calls that return of Christ the last trumpet. So if this is if this is referring to the rapture, then is it the second to the last trumpet or the last trumpet? If it's the rapture, it's the second to the last trumpet. Okay? And so 1 Corinthians 15 must refer to this the second coming of Christ. Did you have a question or a comment? Yeah, a, a, a comment. Um, okay, yeah. Um, Matthew 20, uh, 24, 30, 31. I don't know about Paul talking to the people of tribulation or rapture, but Piedmont Bible College uh, did not teach how it was the rapture. The same thing with First uh, Corinthians uh, 15, uh, or that, that portion there. That was, that was both those were second coming. Okay. So I don't know. I don't know if everybody, you know, I don't know what other people thought, but that's what, All right. what they thought there. If they hold to that, then the only place in the entire New Testament that teaches this rapture is First Thessalonians 4. See, that, that's what I'm trying to, I'm trying to be fair because uh, when you look at John MacArthur, he, he looks at Matthew 24, this particular passage, these teach the rapture, and because they don't want to just be stuck with one passage that teaches the rapture, okay? And so, consequently, they expand it because you need more than one scripture verse to teach any any particular doctrine, and so that's what they do. And my challenge is the context do not allow us to interpret them as the rapture. We're only stuck with First, Thess- First Thessalonians 4 as something that might possibly teach it. And can I ask you this? It, First, First Corinthians 15, it says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. Who is, is Paul included in this way? Well, we, referring to all Christians, including himself, we're not all going to sleep, but some of us will, but we will all be changed. So even though he's not of those that don't fall asleep, he is certainly of those that will be changed, right? Because all will be changed. Paul will be changed at this point. But if the rapture is true, is Paul going to be changed here at the return of Christ, or is Paul going to be changed here at the rapture? according to the, the view of the rapture. First Thessalonians 4 says that he's supposed to get changed at the rapture. Do you remember? All those who died in Christ coming with him are going to receive the, the dead in Christ, are, their physical bodies are raised and joining with their spirits in the sky, and then those who are alive and remain will be caught up body and spirit, and they will all be changed in the air. Now, if that refers to the rapture, then that's where Paul was changed because Paul was dead and he was raised first before those of us who would still be alive. So do you follow that? Paul would have been one of those who being dead in Christ or asleep in Christ was changed at the rapture. But 1 Corinthians 15, Paul includes himself that we will all be changed at the return of Christ. They both can't be true. So do you, do you see this? I, I think we're compelled to, to see 1 Corinthians chapter 4 as not a rapture, but as the second coming of Christ. And that is when we will all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Christ doesn't just stop while he's in midair, receive all the believers to himself and then leave. 
It's just that Paul doesn't continue the story. He just stops right there and, and concludes, and they will be with the Lord forever. Well, if they're with the Lord forever at the second coming, Scripture in Revelation 19 says Jesus comes to the rest of the way to the earth, fights the Antichrist, etc., overthrows him, and then afterwards we have the judgment. Now, um, I'm just going to mention this, the concept of the first resurrection in Revelation 20, verse 5, uh, is really hard-pressed because if, if we hold to a literal thousand-year millennium after the return of Christ, then the first resurrection cannot refer to the rapture, and it, it would have to refer. It would have to be called the second resurrection. Okay? Do you understand? Because this apparently is the first resurrection. This would be the second resurrection for all those who became Christians during the seven-year tribulation, and then the one-thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, according to the premillennial view. So. If, if we're going to hold to a premillennial view, as the rapture, those who believe the rapture do, then we have to say that there are two resurrections, not just one. But John only refers to that one resurrection before the return of Christ. Only one. Now, their response to this is, both of these need to be seen together, even though they're separated by seven years, they need to be seen together as the first resurrection. Um, I struggle with that, but as it, we, I'll just leave it as it is. So let's look then now into this concept of the resurrection. Christ comes back, and, and I'm just going to emphasize this before I move on to this, but when, when Jesus talks about his second coming, you can look at parable after parable after parable, and in none of these parables does Jesus talk about the rapture. None of them. Now, when we get to the millennium, and I'm just going to throw a little uh, carrot in here for you guys to think about and chase and mull over, but we also find that it, Jesus doesn't talk about the millennium in any of them, or a premillennialist millennium in any of his parables either. And we're going to need to, if we hold to a premillennial view, we need to we need to to deal with that. Okay. And, and so you do have people like John MacArthur who sees the millennium in certain parables. But if you, if we do really run into some serious theological problems. Okay. Uh, I'm not touching on that right now. This is the return of Christ. When you read through Jesus's parables, you see things like the parable of the wheat and the weeds. At the end of the age, the angels harvest the earth. And what happens? It says, first, he gathers the ungodly or the wheat and throws them into the fire. Then he gathers the wheat and puts them in his barn. That is the exact opposite of the rapture view. The rapture view says, no, seven years before the end of the age, the angels gather, or Jesus gathers, all the Christians get into the barn, and then seven years later, he gathers all the ungodly and throws them into the fire. And oh yes, there are still some more wheat out there, so he has to gather them a second time and then bring them to heaven and so on. Um, the parable of the ten virgins. The, the five wise are gathered when the bridegroom comes back. 
and the five foolish, it says, are left out. And you get, it's clear that there is a judgment there. You have only the five wise and the five foolish. You don't have the five foolish and the two and the three wise, and then later two more wise, as if there's two uh, gatherings of wise virgins. All right? They're all gathered at the same time. The, fool, the foolish are left outside and they cannot come in. That happens at the return of the bridegroom. So as we go through these parables, we realize that Jesus' focus is very singular. It is on and only on his one return. Okay? Now, I did mention that even though we may theologically disagree, we do need to come to a, a conclusion here, and that is, and I want you to turn back, if you would, to Matthew 24, and it says here, um, verse 42, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. <clears throat> However, if you believe in a rapture, you do know at least what year he will come. Now, I want us to look at verse between verses 36 and 41. This is another section of scripture that um, people hold to that speak of the rapture. And I want us to pay particular attention with regard to verses 39. And forgive me, I'm kind of jumping halfway through a sentence here. But, uh, okay, so I'll start in verse 38. How's that? It says, For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. Verse 39. And they knew nothing about what would happen. Who is they? Okay. The people who were not in the ark. And they knew nothing of what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. What took them all away? The flood did. And who is them? The flood took them. Who is them? People not on the ark. Okay. So we, we have this uh, illustration that Jesus uses that's analogous to the end of the age. And he says that the flood that brings destruction is going to take the ungodly away. Do you see that? Yes. Okay. I just cool. want to add that uh, we believe that that was, that was taught that that was they were taking the judgment. Same yes. thing with the, okay. with the goats and the sheep. Uh, they, they, that was judgment there. That was judgment, not rapture. Um, we, we didn't really claim John MacArthur too much. Okay. All right. Um, the, okay, the, and and that might be, and and again, this 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 then would not be teaching the rapture. Okay, which is my point. So again, we're left with just First Thessalonians four teaching the rapture. Um, but if you're familiar with uh, oh, what's his name, um, wow, Norman, um, Larry Norman. Um, didn't he, wasn't he the guy who wrote the song, I wish we'd all been ready? Two men walking up a hill, one disappears and one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. Okay? And so this idea of two are in a field or two laying in bed, one is taken, the other is left. 
would teach the rapture. Um, that, that's, that's all that I have been taught with regard to the rapture, and obviously there are some that don't agree with that. That's good, because that's better hermeneutics. But this doesn't teach the rapture. Because if we go on and, and read these passages, it says that's, that's how we'll be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two will be in a field, one will be taken and the other left. We've already been told what happens when he's been taken. What happens to him when he's taken? Is it up to heaven? When the flood came, the flood took them all away. Them were the ungodly. Where did it take them? It destroyed them. It judged them. So when we, when Jesus says, applies that principle of the taking away, two men are in a field, one is taken, why is he taken? Is it because he's righteous or unrighteous? He's unrighteous. Not because he's righteous and he's being caught up to Jesus in the air. Same with two women grinding at, at the mill. One's taken, the other's left. Um, and, and Luke elaborates on this, um, where the vultures are the, uh, um, well, I, I totally forgot how that passage goes. I'm sorry. But you can look in, in, um, in Luke, and it, uh, the, the concept is even clearer that he's talking about death and destruction. That's why they're taken away, not raptured up into glory. Okay. All right. I, I want us to move on now. What's that? I'm scared. So as we go, th- as we now move on to this concept of the resurrection, um, someone described for me, if you don't mind, maybe a couple of you, um, this idea of a resurrection. Um, when is it going to happen? You don't have to give me a date or a time, but according to this chart right here, where where would the resurrection happen? And the big R, with the return of Christ, you're saying. Okay, all right. The resurrection, yes. The resurrection from the dead, the resurrection of the dead. Okay. What will your resurrected body look like? Because that's what's being resurrected, right? Okay. Your body is what's being resurrected. So what is that going to look like? Okay, it's going to be a heavenly body. Okay. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. I don't know. Is that going to be like our heaven body? Okay. It'll be physical esque, but spiritual like Jesus was because he can walk through walls and stuff. Okay. All right. Um, the, the idea of walking through walls, I've heard some say. Uh, that Jesus, our bodies, in Philippians chapter 3, it says, I'm, I'm looking here at number 3, the transformed body, um, that our bodies will be like his glorious body. So if Jesus walked through walls, maybe we could too. Um, there, there's one difference between Jesus uh, and us when it comes to the resurrection body, and that is we are man with a resurrected body, and he is also God and man with a resurrected body. So that may be why he can walk through walls. We, we, we don't know, truly. Um, but this idea of a resurrection uh, is something that we should look forward to. Now, before we get to the resurrection, however, it might be here or here, or it might be at his return. 
um, that we get, we are raised up to be with him, but we are all going to die unless Jesus comes back. We are all going to die. We will fall asleep and we will come with him at his return. What does that time period between the time we die and the return of Christ and we receive our resurrected body? Now tell me, what are you like? Rachel? Is it like the Everest Okay, yes. But what what about that then? Okay, so Abraham says I'm with him in Hades. Mm-hmm. Okay. Alright. Um describe more then. What are you gonna be like? Is Stephen gonna look like Stephen? Yes. With Stephen's resurrected body, is he gonna look like Stephen? Yes. I would say yes he would. Okay? Now how about after he dies, what happens to his body? It goes in the ground. Is that where Stephen goes? Does Stephen just kind of take a really long nap in the ground? Yes. Okay. All right. That's called soul sleep. Um, the scripture teaches us that when, in, if, you, if you did your reading and you looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, um, it says that when we are away from the, when it's, it talks about when we die, we are away from the body and at home with the Lord. Away from the body and at home with the Lord. So if we're away from our body, that means my spirit is not with my body in the grave. The concept of soul sleep is that my spirit and my body rest in the grave and we have to consider that body dead, that we are dead in the ground. And at the end of the age when Jesus returns, then voila, we receive, a, we become alive and our bodies are resurrected. We receive our transformed bodies. But my question is, is that really our destination from the time that we die to the return of Christ in the grave? When, if you were to look at Matthew 22, 31 and 32, um, the main, Jesus' main point is that, that the God we serve is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So why would you refer to Abraham if his body is in the grave and he's dead and my spirit is resting in that body? Why would you want to say that I'm alive? Would you say that about those who are not, un that, that those who are ungodly? See, the, the point here is that the spirit is alive in, in Matthew 22, the spirit is the is alive because God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. The Sadducees believed that once you're dead, you're dead. There was no resurrection. But if I'm dead, then I'm dead. And Jesus Jesus says he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. He's the God. Of, he said at the burning bush, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. I am, not I was, but I am. And Jesus' point is, see, he's the God of the living, not the dead. So first, Second Corinthians 12, you know, we're away from the body, we're present with the Lord. Now, with regard to the ungodly, 
2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 has something to say for us. If you want to turn there, as soon as I get there, which is right now, I'm going to read it. So you can still turn there. But this is what it says. Um, if that is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. So if when we die, our spirits remain in our body in the grave, and again, this is all a misunderstanding of this word falling asleep, by the way. They truly believe that your spirit falls asleep and remains in the grave with your body. But that is not what it means. Actually, when the damsel died, it said her spirit departed and her body was right there with Jesus, but it was dead, or as Jesus said, asleep. So, I'm not understanding what you're contrasting. Are you saying that there are some people that believe that our spirit splits and it's alive doing its thing while the body is rotting, and other people believe that both sleep and rot and never, like your spirit? Okay, those who hold to soul sleep would say that your body remains in the grave. It turns into dust, and that's where your spirit rests in the grave. Forever or until, until Christ returns. Okay. Okay. So they are asleep in the grave until Christ's return. And so when you say the Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection? The, the Sadducees do not believe in a resurrection at all. And that's Jesus was speaking to the Sadducees at Matthew 22. So like they believe once you're dead, you're done? You're done, right. They don't believe in a resurrection at all. Now, the Seventh-day Adventists that, that believe in soul sleep, they would say that there is a resurrection. So, you know, they're not tag-teaming with the Sadducees on this. But they do believe that your your spirit rests in the grave. Cole, comment, who questions? Believes, who believes in soul sleep besides uh, Jehovah's Witnesses? Or is, that the, is, is it Jehovah's that? Witnesses as well? Seventh-day Adventists. Seventh-day Adventists. Okay. Right. So, Seventh-day yes, Adventists Kate. believe in soul sleep until the Right, at the and resurrection. Then, then there's the judgment. But Jehovah's Witnesses believe in soul sleep until that coming, and then the, those who would not be rescued or caught will remain in soul sleep forever. Well, they actually believe in annihilation. Yeah. So that they will be burned up, and once you're burned up, you're consumed and you no longer exist. So they believe in annihilation. So, yeah, we're, we're going to get to annihilationism in uh, in a few weeks here. But, so yes, they, they do believe in, in that, but come the judgment, then they get burned up. They just no longer exist, period. Okay? Uh, if, if With regard to the, uh, the ungodly. All right. Um, I do not believe that the body goes into the ground and our spirit goes into the ground. Scripture teaches my body will go into that ground, it will decay and become dust. From dust it was formed and to dust it will return. But my spirit leaves my body and in a bodiless spirit form, my spirit, I will be with the Lord in heaven, in his throne room, until Christ's return. When Christ returns, I will come with him. And when we when he reaches the atmosphere, wherever exactly that might be, my body that has been de that has decomposed in the ground will 
join me and be transformed. And with Jesus, I will receive my resurrected body. Those who are alive will be caught up with the Lord and will receive a resurrected body. We will then proceed to the rest of the way to the earth, and there will be the end time battle, Armageddon, etc. The Antichrist will be overthrown, and then the judgment. Okay, that would be Matt, that would be Revelation nineteen. Um, any questions with regard to that, Stephen? So when you were talking about like Noah, the saving of Noah okay. On this idea of being taken away, anyway. The, uh, the days, is, it, it will come as a surprise to them. Right. Okay. Like the flood. But like, the flood is, like the, the sinners being washed away by the flood, the judgment of the flood, is, is like, like people being wiped out. But is it also that the ark, um, like, is, people are building, or no one in family is building the ark, well, uh, hang on, just one second. Jesus' parable doesn't touch on that. Right. I mean, we can we can use it as a type, but that would be what we want to do with it at that point. That would not be what Jesus is teaching. Okay, his focus is what was going to happen to the ungodly. All right, and that they would be taken away and the others left. All right. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so with we have here in this passage of Second Peter chapter two verse nine that the ungodly that their bodies obviously remain in the ground but their spirits are in Hades. Um, when we get to Hades and hell, and I'm just going to throw this out there for you right now, um, no one presently is thrown into hell. That might come as a surprise to some of you. Um, Unless we use the term hell to be this caveat name for punishment regardless. But it does say in Revelation 20 that Hades and death is emptied and cast into hell. So all of those that were in Hades, such as the rich, uh, the rich man in the, in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, who, by the way, Jesus, not, Jesus does not give it to us as a parable. It has no markings as a parable, and it may very well be a true story. Okay? That, that might be kind of new for some of you, but it might be a parable. It's just that it has no trappings. The kingdom of heaven is like, etc. Um, it is a teaching. So, it's true or not, regardless, we, we see there that the rich man is in Hades. Your version says hell. The Greek is Hades, meaning Hades. And it's not Gehenna, which is hell. So when we die, if we are not believers in Jesus Christ, our spirit will not rise to be with him. We will be in Hades, okay? And so you have the paradise or the throne room of God, heaven, etc., called Abraham's bosom in Luke 16, which is the, the story of, of the rich man and Lazarus. And you have the rich man who did not choose to follow God. He is in Hades. He's burning. He, it's, it's intensely hot. He's in fire. And he just wants Lazarus to touch his finger in some water and then touch it on his tongue because the agony is so intense. So... 
this passage says that they are in this place. It doesn't name it, but they are held in Hades. They are held for judgment all the while being punished. So just like the rich man, he's being punished. He's in Hades. Okay? He can recognize Lazarus. Lazarus is a disembodied spirit. His body's in the ground. His spirit is what he sees, and he can recognize them. When I am in heaven, should Jesus tarry, and I'm looking at Stephen in his disembodied spirit, I will be able to recognize Stephen. He will be able to recognize me. I probably won't have all this gray hair, though. What scripture was that about? Uh, just with that was Second Peter chapter two verse nine, oh. with regard to, um, <clears throat> excuse me, with regard to the ungodly being held for judgment, all the while receiving their punishment. Luke sixteen is the Jesus teaching about the rich man and Lazarus. Cole, um, Luke, Luke kind of talked about that um, Hades was like. Mountain jail, and uh, Gehenna was like uh, penitentiary. You know, if, if you're caught doing something wrong, you're sent to uh, county jail until the judgment, and then you're okay. sent to penitentiary. Okay. I don't know if that helps me. But and 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 so yeah, then and, and that that's that's good. That's fine. The idea is that Hades is not the final abode of those who are ungodly. Uh, hell is. There is still punishment. If you were to weigh the difference between Hades and hell, I would have to say, I don't know. Except in hell, you will have your body. The significance of that, it would seem, well, maybe that there's more pain because our bodies experience pain. But Jesus just is not clear. Don't be afraid of him who can punish the, who can just punish the body, but of him who can cast both body and soul into Gehenna. He says, hell is always the place, not of disembodied spirits. It's not, a pl- it, it, hell is the place for our body and spirit, for the ungodly. Okay, body and spirit. Um, while you were in Hades, there is no scripture reference to demons or Satan himself. They are not in Hades. There are no passages that refer to Satan and his demons visiting uh, taking a vacation in, or stopping by to say hey, or living there forever in Hades. There is no reference. The only reference to their punishment is Tartarus that we have talked about um, many, many months ago, um, <clears throat> and hell. And hell was created for the devil and his angels. Hell will also be the place where the ungodly, after the judgment, with their bodies, resurrected bodies, they will, with their spirits, will be cast into hell. Okay? So those in Hades get a second chance or no? Nope. Mm-mm. They just go to hell they, eventually. At the end, when Jesus returns, everyone in Hades and death itself will be cast into hell, it says. So there is no second chance. There are those who believe that there's a second chance, but after um, after we die, there is after death there is the judgment. Okay, Hebrews nine twenty seven, and it's very clear. Who's the 
there is no second chance. Okay? If there's a second chance, there is very little, if any, need to proclaim the gospel. All right, any questions thus far? <clears throat> I'm sorry? Yes, Cole. There's, there's groups around now that, uh, I remember when I was a pilot, there was a, pilot somewhere. Uh, there was a, a church that got started at uh, Charisma, and uh, that pastor taught that uh, uh, everybody's going to, uh, everybody's going to heaven, even the devil. And uh, I think there's that second chance thing we were talking, we were just, just talking about, but I'm not sure about their theology. Um, okay. If that's true, I can guarantee you they got they got the left foot of fellowship and got booted out. Uh, they're not there today, are they? I don't know because they know they, the they were there for several story. years, okay. and the guy the guy uh, finally just I mean he just lost all enthusiasm to try to do it at all. He, he didn't want to be in the ministry and then he left. I don't know. Okay, that sounds like a good thing then. Yeah, yeah. that he left. Yeah, because yeah. that will definitely damn people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Second chance, no hell. Um, is there any scripture is clear? Can you name any groups that believe that? That believe yeah, that mean, there's mean, no hell? Yeah. Are they, are they <clears> liberal theologians. Okay. Yeah. Second, liberal second theologians second. and um, neo orthodox. That would be like William Barclay, um, a very well known preacher, radio personality. Uh, Martin Lloyd Jones called William Barclay, who's written many. He's written a commentary, by the way, very well known amongst Christians. Um, he called him the most dangerous man on earth because neo-orthodoxy uh, talks like conservatives but believe like liberals, and so they can be very dangerous. Okay, um, so <clears throat> um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Very well known, died in prison, I believe in 1945. Um, a lot of wonderful qualities about him. But he was not. He was. A, he was not a true believer in Jesus Christ. He wrote a phenomenal book called the, the Cost of Discipleship. But again, he, he even said in his letters in prison, "People, I'm afraid people will not understand my book because Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked like a conservative but believed like a liberal." Okay. Um, not to get into every, he did not believe in the literal resurrection of Jesus' body. He believed that Jesus' body was not in heaven, that we are the body of Jesus, that, that Christ was a community of believers and not a person in heaven. So we just need to be careful when, and, and of course, Rob Bell, you're familiar with, and um, uh, with, in his book, Love Wins, believes that there's a second chance. So, denominations, I mean, I, 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 denominations. I, I'm not sure what denomination Rob Bell would be. Um, Francis Chan wrote a book uh, entitled Erasing Hell as a, uh, as a counter to Rob Bell's Love Wins. Um, so, I would agree, love wins, but not in the way Rob Bell says it. Christian science don't believe in hell, something like that. Correct. Christian science doesn't believe in the reality of sin either. Okay. Um, 
turn, to, turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're skipping down here to the transformed body. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, I read the passage a little bit earlier. And tell you what, Zach, you have your... Cole, could you look up Luke 24.39? Luke 24.39? And I'm just going to repeat this passage, 1 Corinthians 15.50. It says, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Skipping up to verse 42, it says, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Let me just make it very clear. A spiritual body is not a spirit. Okay? I know we're a little bit distracted at, at this point because of the nursery. But did you get that? A spiritual body is not a spirit. A spiritual body is the imperishable body and spirit. So the body is, this body right here is natural. My resurrected body will be spiritual. Okay? Meaning it will be imperishable. Not that you'll be, your hand will be able to go through it like a ghost or an apparition of some sort. Okay? Um, we know this because, Cole, Luke 24, 39, what does it say? It says, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. The ghost does not have flesh and bones. As you see, I have. Okay. What are the two words Jesus uses to describe his body, his body's consistency? Flesh and bones. Okay. Um, we need to take that together as an expression. The expression that's used here in 1 Corinthians 15 is flesh and blood. I want to be careful. Again, flesh and bones together is an expression. Flesh and blood is an expression. As Paul uses flesh and blood, the idea flesh and blood is the natural perishable me. The flesh and bones... Jesus' point is that you can touch it, okay? It's a spiritual body, flesh and bones, but it cannot be destroyed. And so that is Jesus' point when he says, touch me, feel me, I am not a ghost that does not have flesh and bones, okay? So my spirit, will not, when it goes to be with God, does, will not have flesh and bones. But I will look like me, and you will look like you. But... When we receive our spiritual body, yes, I'll look like me and you will look like you, but we will, the flesh and bone, if we're to take that literally, I imagine that there's going to be flesh, there is going to be bone, but not, not as we know it. Because my bones can break and my flesh can cut and bleed. But our spiritual body will not. So that's all that I can say about this, the spiritual transformed body, because there's Jesus, the uh, authors of the New Testament do not go into great detail about what this body is going to be like. It does say in Philippians 3 that our bodies will be like his glorious body. Okay, So that what we read here about Jesus' body, 
is going to be what's what our body is going to be like our transformed imperishable spiritual body okay all right <clears throat> any questions with just with regard to that yes the spirit is separate from the spiritual body now it when we're resurrected our spirit will be with our spiritual body but there is a contrast made between the natural body which is flesh and blood that will not inherit the kingdom of God and the spiritual body which is imperishable and as Jesus says touch me I am flesh and bone he doesn't say I'm flesh and blood but I'm flesh and bone and by the way um poor little guy wow <laughs> And so when Jesus, by the way, when, when, when Jews spoke of bones, uh, the blood was your life. When you died, the blood drained out, okay? And, and so you were dead. The idea of bones, though, went beyond death. And same with flesh. Flesh would eventually decay. And what they would do is they would take, after a year, they would take the body of the one who had died, the flesh had decayed, and they would gather the bones. Remember when Joseph died, he said, take my bones back with you. So some 400 plus years, or around there, around 400 years later, they took his bones, that it, no doubt, um, and, and they took him back with them. Now, it... What they what Jews would do is after a year the bodies decayed, they would gather the bones and they would put them in an ossuary. It would be about one foot wide by two feet, I guess about a foot deep, made of stone, had a lid, and they would put those, put the lid on it. Many times they would put engravings on them. Um, and this is one of the things, by the way, has been interesting because as Jerusalem recently has been expanding, it's been expanding into some grave sites. And they have come across some of these ossuaries with interesting engravings on them. Even as early in the 40s AD, you see crosses on the underside of the, 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 the top of the, the lid of the ossuary. You are not supposed to remove that lid. As a matter of fact, if you disturbed that, according to Roman law, it was a penalty of death. So it, it would, it's possible, but just very unlikely, that someone afterwards, after the 40s, put those crosses on the underside of the uh, the lid. The question that we're, we've got to wrestle with, if there are crosses on the underside of the lid, why would they put a Roman sign of crucifixion on the underside of the lid? In this, And they date it back to 43 to 48 AD. There's only one answer. And that's not because they were trying to depict how they died. Otherwise, you'd see swords and uh, all you know, yeah, other types of impalements, disease. How do you, how do you draw how a do disease, you draw a by the way, on the other side? Of, no, the cross meant hope. How on earth would a cross ever mean hope? I present that question to you. How would a cross ever mean hope? What about Jesus? Tell me. For eternal life. What about eternal life? Okay, tell me something about Jesus and the cross. How does that bring hope? And then he rose from the dead. Okay, so the cross symbolizes our hope of the resurrection. All right, 
The early church in the 40s believed this. This idea of a legend developing that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the early church firmly believed that Jesus rose from the dead and that that was their sign of hope in the resurrection. Okay, uh, That's not my point. We're now looking at this idea of judgment. Uh, Jude has an interesting um, passage here. If you could turn to the book of Jude, careful, because you'll go right past it if you're not looking. This is an interesting quote from Enoch. And yes, it's the Enoch that we know, the seventh from Adam. Um, And Enoch walked with the Lord and then was not. He was 300, what, 50 years old? trying to remember the exact years, and and then he was not. He was translated, as they say, from earth to heaven. Now, uh, he will be, no doubt, one of the very few that will be walking around, I would imagine, with a resurrected body. Um, Maybe it's possible that his body and spirit got separated right there and God buried his body. It just doesn't tell us that. It just says that he was walking with God and then was not. God took him. Now, he has left behind a prophecy. Um, This prophecy is not recorded in the Old Testament. It's recorded, to the best of our knowledge, in uh, in another work, an apocryphal work. And let me just say this, that because this is recognized by Jude as a legitimate prophecy, does not make this apocryphal work inspired of God. It does tell me that the that the, the author of that apocryphal work got it right with this prophecy. That's all it tells me. Otherwise, we would have to say that um, Epimenides was a prophet of God because Paul quoted from him in Acts twenty. Um, excuse me in in, the, in Acts seventeen. When he was on Athens, in in Athens. But Epimenides was a Greek philosopher. He was not a Christian. He was an ungodly man. But he was quoted as saying something that Paul included that was very prophetic. So even Caiaphas, by the way, prophesied that it didn't make him a Christian. So he gives this prophecy, and it says this, See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. I would venture to say he'd judge pretty firmly the ungodly, wouldn't you? Um, That's his focus there. He's judging the ungodly. And this happens right after his return. Okay? So he comes with thousands upon thousands. What's his intent? His intent is to come with judgment. Okay? And so he, he brings this, he, he brings judgment. And in 2 Thessalonians, it's even clearer. Second Thessalonians chapter one, it's even clearer what this judgment is going to look like. So Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse 16, God is just. Let me back up to, to verse five if I could. All this is evidence 
that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. And the question, of course, is, well, when are we going to receive this relief? This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. So Jesus is going to come in blazing fire with his powerful angels. I'm not seeing anything secret about this. Um, And he is going to bring relief to us, but he is also going to, at that time, punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. This is akin to uh, Jesus' term, outer darkness. Shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who will believe. So Jesus, when he comes, he will come and then immediately after he comes, he will bring judgment. He will separate the ungodly from the godly, even as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. And when they are separated according to that uh, teaching, uh, again, that's in Matthew 25. It's commonly called the parable of the sheep and the goats. Unfortunately, uh, there's no inclination that it's a parable. Jesus does use a simile even as the king, who is him, is separating the nations, the godly from the ungodly, he does it like a shepherd separates the goat from the sheep. There's no more reference to goats or sheep. From there on, it talks about the king. So I'm I'm hesitant in calling that a parable, but it's just a straightforward teaching, meaning that that when we read it, we are not going to be hearing um, symbolic language. Uh, We read about hell and its punishment, And we need to just get rid of this concept that hell is simply, um, the the fires of hell are simply parabolic or symbolic language. That this punishment is simply symbolic language. That is the take that Rob Bell, or the spin that Rob Bell gives to hell. Um, That parable, that story rather, is there's no inclination that it's a parable, it's just straightforward teaching. And when those who have not followed the Lord Jesus and done what he had asked, done his, the will of the Father, they will be cast into uh, everlasting destruction, prepared for the devil and his angels, it says. So this will happen when Jesus returns. In that parable, it says that he will come with his mighty angels, he will sit on his throne, he will gather the nations, and he will separate them, he will take the godly, and they will enter into his kingdom, and he will take the ungodly and cast them into hell. This is, this is judgment. This happens at the end of the age and immediately follows his, his return. Okay? And so, we, we do see the culmination of all of this that I, I don't have time right now to get into, but it, it's the culmination, Revelation 20, and it talks about the final judgment in which Hades and death and all of the ungodly will be cast into the second, into the lake of fire, the second death, which is hell. Body and spirit. 
and there is no end to their torment. There is no end to Satan's torment. It says forever and ever and ever the smoke rises and he is tormented forever and ever. There's no concept of annihilationism there. It is strictly the judgment of God. But here is the good news, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, will not suffer eternal torment, will not suffer eternal destruction, but will gain eternal life. And that is ours for all of us who believe in him. So I'm just going to close in that. That is the good news. The good news is that he has truly rescued me, not only from my sin, but when he returns, I will be spending forever and ever on his glorified or renewed earth. And even before that, I will be spending time with him between my death and his, re- and his second return in his presence, in, his, in the presence of his majesty um, and in his, his glory and power. And that's something that I look forward to, especially when you go through life enough and you just, you, you, you see how tough life is and how hard it is. And I am looking forward to that day and spending forever and ever with him. Let me close in prayer. Father, I want to thank you for the joys and the triumphs that we are reading about today of your second coming, Jesus, and, and you will come to bring judgment, but for us, God, you will be extending mercy because we will be found, according to your grace, we will be found in you, and in, in you we will have this awesome, tremendous inheritance that we will be able to gain forever and ever in your presence, unending days, and we will be able, by your grace, to avert judgment. There is no purgatory. There is no judgment after I die. It is with you in your presence forever and ever. Because when you died, you said it, it's finished. There's nothing more that needs to be done but me simply saying yes to you, Jesus. Thank you for all that you have accomplished for us, Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.